Thompson, Senior Project and Research Officer at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. We've got something a little different for you today. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing my colleague Simone Van Nivenhazen, Project and Research Support Officer at the Australia-China Relations Institute. Simone is also the producer of our podcast. Before joining ACRI in February, Simone was based at the University of Sydney's China Studies Centre and was on the team that established the university's centre in China. She has also held research and project roles at the Carnegie Tsinghua Centre for Global Policy and the Lowy Institute for International Policy. She has a Master's in Diplomacy in Chinese from Peking University and has lived in China for three years. Simone will be talking to me today about her book, China and the New Maoists, co-authored with Kerry Brown, Professor of Chinese Politics at King's College London, and published last year. The book examines an increasingly vocal group of people in China claiming to be Mao's true ideological heirs and discusses the complex continuing use of and appeals to Mao both as a historical figure and the body of thought and political religion he forged. Mao presided over disastrous policies, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, to name two of the most egregious examples, that came at great human cost and inflicted extensive suffering on the Chinese people. These policies unleashed the Chinese people against one another. But, as the authors of China and the New Maoists emphasise, there was worship of Mao that was real and sincere. As the 41st anniversary of Mao's death on September 9 approaches, we will discuss the rise of China's new Maoists and the continuing significance of Mao Zedong's legacy in China today. Welcome to the program, Simone. Hi, Eleanor. It's great to be in the hot seat today. <laughs> <laughs> so first, a bit of housekeeping on definitions. For the purposes of this interview, what do you mean when you refer to Maoism or describe an individual as a Maoist? Well, our book mainly focuses on neo-Maoists who emerged following Mao Zedong's death in 1976, and we'll get to that a bit later, I'm sure. But just a very brief introduction to the idea of Maoism. Basically, it's a revolutionary socialist ideology um, that was developed by Mao that strives for equality, egalitarianism, classless society by revolutionary struggle. And when Mao really rose to power as the leader of the People's Republic of China in 1949, when it was established, he really became the figurehead of this revolutionary ideology, which was really about overturning feudalism, imperialism, colonialism, all of these uh, really odious, uh, Western, mostly Western-based uh, political ideologies and establishing a utopian society in terms of China's context really focused on the peasants rather than the working class. It was not by a peaceful democratic process, although sometimes Mao referred to democracy as something that he actually aspired to, but it was about violent revolution, violently overturning the influence that was ongoing um, from these other odious elements. Mao is very much criticised for some of his economic policies, particularly collectivization, which saw devastating effects on the countryside, um, starvation on a massive scale, and he actually borrowed most of these ideas from uh, Soviet Russia. So in particular Stalinism. So Maoism also encourages class struggle and uh, this was really manifested 
most obviously during the Cultural Revolution, where if you belonged to the wrong class, then you were subject to abuse, imprisonment, often execution. People were pit against each other and also sometimes spoke out against their own families. Um, so these are examples uh, of the effects of Mao's policies in China during his lifetime. As we'll discuss further in this podcast, these are ongoing issues in China's collective memory. Mm. So against this backdrop, who are China's new Maoists and how did this phenomenon develop? So the term is examined in some detail in our book and I won't go into too much detail because you can get in quite a tangle when you try to distinguish between neo-Maoists and leftists. So I'll keep it simple and well I'll simplify it a bit for our listeners. Um, There is some debate actually about what constitutes a neo-Maoist. It is quite a loaded term and some people that we would consider neo maoists actually prefer not to use that term because of this weighty history behind it. So they sometimes refer to themselves as leftists or the new left. Um, But for the purposes of this discussion, Maoists and and the new left can more or less be considered one in the same in that there are a group of people who support Mao's economic and or social policies and vision for China's future as an egalitarian, classless and socialist nation. There are two waves of neo-Maoism. Uh, The first one developed following Mao Zedong's death and Deng Xiaoping's rise to power as the new leader of the People's Republic of China um, and also following the economic reforms that Deng Xiaoping introduced in 1978-1979. Among neo-Maoists of this period, they believed that the marketization, um, liberalization of China's economy, opening up to the outside world and um, allowing influences from capitalist countries was really a negative development and would ultimately mean that China would be steering away from this socialist path that Mao Zedong had set them on. So that was the first wave. And then the second wave really became apparent following 1989 and the Tiananmen Massacre. So a group of people interpreted the series of events as evidence that um, neoliberalism and imperialism had basically infiltrated Chinese society and had given, um, in this case, uh, the student protesters the idea that um, it was good to strive for a Western-style liberal democracy and they wanted China to go on a path that was more in line with um, other Western-style political systems. And consequently, actually, the government's own response to the Tiananmen massacre in terms of their the media response really um, borrowed a lot from the Maoist period in terms of reinforcing the importance of loyalty to the nation and appealing to groups of society that may have sympathy for these neoliberal ideas to really consider where China had come from and its communist and socialist roots. Well, how is Mao viewed by the Chinese Communist Party today? As you can imagine, it's a deeply complex and sometimes paradoxical relationship. Um, In Tiananmen Square, which is the largest public square in the world and also um, China's major political centre, there is a huge portrait of Mao hanging um, from the entrance of the Forbidden City. 
And this really stands as a symbol for how the, Ch the Chinese Communist Party sees him as the founding father of the party itself, but also the country, so the People's Republic of China. And why I say it's a deeply complex and paradoxical relationship is because there hasn't really been a proper um, reckoning of some of the really disastrous effects that Mao's policies had. So we have mentioned the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution as two of the most egregious examples of the havoc that Mao Zedong wreaked on, the, on society at the time. But there hasn't really been a proper accounting for the deaths um, there's no national commemoration for the victims of the Cultural Revolution. And last year, actually, one of the only museums, if not the only museum, dedicated to the memory of the victims of the Cultural Revolution was shut down. And its doors were emblazoned with um, pro, uh, Communist Party propaganda, mainly promoting the China, China dream. So it's a very clear indication that China, on the one hand, wants to elevate the image of Mao Zedong, but on the other hand is trying to silence the negative aspects. And one of the most significant documents that has been released by the Communist Party to date on this issue is the 1981 Resolution on Party History. This is the document from which the statement 70% right, 30% wrong comes from. The document didn't actually explicitly use this formulation, but what it did say was that while Mao made mistakes in later life, his achievements are primary and his errors are secondary. And one of the things that this document does is uh, make it clear that in the party's view it wasn't just Mao's fault alone as an individual even though he was the leader of the country for the Cultural Revolution but he was influenced by and ironically they call them leftists um, which is the Gang of Four they're referring to and they said that the, the Gang of Four adversely influenced his thinking and led him down the wrong path. So Mao is not actually fully accountable for his encouragement of the violence and the fact that it was actually from his thinking initially. Um, and also in the constitution you can still really see the strong influence that Mao has over Chinese political life. Yeah, Mao Zedong's thought is placed front and centre of the constitution and all other ideologies, um, Deng Xiaoping theory, the three represents, etc. They're all seen as developments or continuations of Mao Zedong's thought rather than their own unique contributions to China's political thinking. In recent years, it's quite interesting that there has been a renewed attraction to Maoist rhetoric in China's state media. So just last month, I saw there was a study that found that in the People's Daily, uh, Mao Zedong was mentioned 30% more than Deng Xiaoping since 2013. So. The party really does take advantage of the fact that Mao has such emotional appeal and the fact that he was the one who established um, New China. Thanks very much for that detailed breakdown of how the Chinese Communist Party has attempted to control and manipulate the narrative of Mao and his legacy. And flowing on from that, um, if we could talk about Chinese President Xi Jinping for a moment. Um, 
President Xi and his family suffered during the Cultural Revolution. Xi's father, a senior party official, fell victim to one of Mao's purges and was tortured. Xi's half-sister is said to have taken her own life during the period. Yet Xi is sometimes described as, quote, following in the footsteps of Mao, end quote, not least in his demands for party devotion. As you mentioned in your book, on the, on the 120th anniversary of Mao's birth in 2013, Xi delivered an oration entitled Carry On the Enduring Spirit of Mao Zedong Thought. Why has Xi chosen not to repudiate Mao, given his personal experiences, and why does he continue to invoke him? Well, that's a very good question, and I think a lot of observers sometimes think that Xi Jinping is the new Mao, um, perhaps because he enjoys very strong internal support and he paints himself as a very a very capable and very strong figure, um, which may be in, in contrast to some of the previous leaders of China over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, but I think that this is a quite a mistaken view um, the era of Mao Zedong is over, and I should make it clear that neo-Maoists, they are a fringe group of society. It's not, um, they're, they're by no means the majority. Um, but uh, due to the troubled relationship that the party has with Mao, it sometimes is difficult to really separate itself from Mao. As you mentioned, Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, he was one of the so-called eight immortals of the Chinese Communist Party. So he was one of, I guess you could say, the right-hand men of Mao um, in the early years of the Chinese Communist Party. And he was not immune to persecution. He was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution although he was later rehabilitated by Deng Xiaoping. He suffered enormously. And another, another interesting thing to note about Xi Zhongxun is that it's thought that he was one of the major um, party leaders who was the most outspoken against the military crackdown against the student protests in 1989. A lot of people thought that Xi Jinping would sort of follow in the footsteps of his father and perhaps have some more liberal ideas. But the thing about um, contemporary Chinese politics is that Mao is really inextricably linked to the party itself and therefore the country. So to call into question his legacy and his policies in such a comprehensive way would raise far too many uncomfortable questions that the Communist Party, frankly, would not want to answer. Eleanor, you mentioned that Xi Jinping made a speech on the 120th anniversary of Mao's birth in 2013. Mm. Um, yeah, so in that speech, Xi Jinping actually said that revolutionary leaders are not gods, but human beings. But at the same time, in, in the same speech, he said that China will continue to hold high the banner of Mao Zedong thought forever. So just in that one speech, I think it really encapsulates this contradictory relationship that the Chinese Communist Party has with Mao. And I think it's also worth mentioning here that the official party position is not to commemorate his death, but to commemorate his birth. So I, last year, there were actually a lot of planned activities uh, which were organised just by community groups or some neo-Maoists, perhaps, to commemorate his death. 
some of those cele planned celebrations last year were either shut down or ordered to be toned down. So moving on now from Xi Jinping to another very recognisable name in Chinese politics, Bo Lai. Bo Lai used to be party chief of Chongqing and he was imprisoned on corruption charges in 2013. Uh, now he promoted a particular brand of so-called red nostalgia. Um, he experimented with campaigns that vaguely invoked the spirit of the Cultural Revolution, and this was ultimately used in denunciations against him. But red nostalgia seems to be encouraged and harnessed by the state in other ways. There is, for example, a national red tourism coordination group under the China National Tourism Administration. So to what end is red nostalgia used by the state, and in what other forms does it come in in this present day? Well, the state definitely uses red nostalgia to promote a sense of nationalism and loyalty to the party. So uh, you mentioned red tourism as an example. So this really emerged uh, in 2004. The, the government released quite a comprehensive policy document about its desire to promote tourism to essentially revolutionary sites in China's communist history. And this has been promoted ever since then and actually 2005 they dedicated as the year of red tourism because they really wanted as many people as possible to um, get in touch with the revolutionary history uh, of the Chinese Communist Party and inspire a sense of not only loyalty but admiration and even adoration. And in terms of uh, Chongqing, yes, Bo Lai was known as a very charismatic personality and um, when he was party chief of Chongqing, a lot of people touted him as potentially the next president even. He was seen to be such an infectious personality and actually introducing a lot of positive policies in Chongqing at the time. One of the policies he introduced was um, Hukou reform. So for our, our listeners who may not be aware, um, everybody in China has a hukou which links them to a particular city. So, for example, if you've got a Beijing hukou, then you have the right to live there, to send your, your kids to school there, even sometimes get uh, preferential access to university admissions. And this has really caused a lot of strife among China's migrant workers who may not have the hukou of, uh, of the city in which they've actually migrated to, to get work. And so what, what Bo Xilai did was to initiate reform in Chongqing to say that um, migrant workers could still hold their rural hukou but would still have all of the rights, the same rights as everybody else who had the Chongqing hukou while they were working there. And this was seen as a very positive development, especially by neo-Maoists because it reflected this move towards um, recognition of workers' rights. And I think one thing to mention here is the word nostalgia. So I wouldn't say that neo-Maoists are nostalgic for Mao. Um, they're actually pushing for concrete social and economic policies. And while nostalgia is one aspect of it, um, it's really about overhauling the way in which China runs the country. In today's digital age, Maoist slogans and maxims seem rather anachronistic. But the internet has been a powerful tool in fostering the growth of neo-Maoism. What role has the internet played in the growth of neo-Maoism's popularity? 
A lot of people have the assumption that China's internet is very strictly controlled, and to a certain extent it is controlled. Um, most of our listeners would be aware of the so-called Great Firewall and also um, China's recent announcement that it will most likely block access to VPNs to try to prevent its people from accessing um, some outside information. But it's virtually impossible to control every aspect of the internet and the discussions that go on there. The internet has really played quite a substantial role in spurring on the neo-Maoist movement in China. It's really um, been a platform for people to gather on forums, on Weibo, on WeChat, all of these sort of social media platforms to find people who have uh, similar ideas to them, who are like-minded. One of the really striking examples of the internet's power um, in this regard is the online journal or online newspaper Utopia. Um, and as the title suggests, uh, it's a very much a neo-Maoist outlet and it promotes public intellectuals' articles uh, and their thoughts about China's development, uh, contemporary politics, international relations and mostly their opposition to ch existing Chinese policy. The internet and the discussions that go on on the internet uh, in the neo-Maoist space actually puts a lot of pressure on the government itself because of some of these issues that I've discussed previously, the fact that they want to hold Mao Zedong up as, as a symbol for the establishment of the party and its origins, but at the same time want to play down some of the very negative impacts that he had. Um, one example that comes to mind is the journal uh, Yen Huang Chun Shou, which is sometimes in English rendered as Spring and Autumn Annals. In 2013, a historian wrote an article that questioned some of the details of quite a prominent story that is still featured in China's text, historical textbooks about the five heroes of Langya Mountain who supposedly committed suicide by jumping off the cliff to resist capture by the Japanese during the, uh, the anti-Japanese war. And there was a huge online backlash against the writer of this article who threw pro profanities at him uh, on Weibo and got a lot of support from his fellow neo-Maoists. Um, as, a, as a result of this, the editor of that journal, which had been known to be quite liberal leaning and you know quite a quite an open-minded scholarly journal uh, launched a defamation case against the individual who wrote these comments um, not only was this unsuccessful but the journal itself was subsequently sued and successfully sued for defaming these uh, these martyrs and um, the, the people who brought the defamation case against the journal were two descendants of these martyrs who, who claimed that they had smeared their name and their family's name. So they were ordered to apologise. And um, a couple of years later, just last year actually, the journal itself was pretty much shut down and um, its editors and writers were replaced with, I would say, quite... Maoist-leaning people, including a couple of the people who um, actually instigated this whole incident, which is quite interesting. The court statement, actually, um, in the, the defamation case against the journal, said that the articles not only contained content that harmed their feelings, but also the public sense of national identity, and this is why they were asked to apologise. And now 
partly as a result of, I think, this case, but there have been many other cases, uh, China has introduced legislation to protect the memory of China's revolutionary martyrs. And that legislation was introduced earlier this year. So these online exchanges really put pressure on the government to um, state clearly where their allegiances lie, whether they um, still adhere to Mao Zedong thought, like the constitution says, or whether they, they want to um, promote ideas that may go against the, the real core of China's Communist Party. Another important example is Bi Fujian from 2015. Uh, he was recorded with a smartphone uh, at a private function at a dinner party, uh, mocking Mao and adding sarcastic lyrics to uh, a revolutionary song. And this video was spread on the internet. Um, it was leaked by one of the guests at this dinner. It resulted in a massive public backlash against his behavior. Um, he was sacked from CCTV, forced to apologize, um, and he's, he hasn't been seen since. Um, and he was a huge media personality. He was actually the host at one point of the famous Spring Festival Gala a TV variety show on CCTV. So even just in private, insulting Mao, uh, speaking about Mao in the wrong way, in the wrong place at the wrong time, can really um, destroy people's careers. Um, in, in discussing neo-Maoism, one might be forgiven for thinking that one could avoid mention of Donald Trump, <laughs> a figure who usually looms large, for better or for worse, uh, in day-to-day yeah. -day discussions. But there is a surprising uh, connection between Trump and neo-Maoism. So some of China's new Maoists have expressed enthusiasm for the Trump presidency. And one proponent has gone so far as to state that President Trump is alone amongst world leaders daring to, quote, openly promote the political ideas of Chairman Mao, end quote. Why is this? Well, I think this comes back to the definition of Maoism um, that I tried to articulate earlier. Um, so Trump really laid his campaign trail on the working class, um, yeah, which he labelled as the oppressed working class, um, he was saying that America was on the wrong track, um, you know, uh, make America great again. Um, so all of these ideas really had appeal for um, among the neo-Maoists. Um, and a lot of them really did express quite a keen appreciation of Trump, especially while he was on the campaign trail and shortly after he became president. But it's interesting that this, is act this trend is actually reversed in the six months since he became president. So I think that people really see what his policies are actually about and realise that it's, it's not all it was cracked up to be. So Maoist websites like Utopia, um, which I discussed earlier, have featured quite scathing articles about his behaviour and also the behaviour of his supporters. So there was one article about the Charlottesville protests where um, the writer admonishes rightist behaviour and Nazism and says that uh, 
the incident shows how resurgent fascism is a product of the so-called democratic system of global capitalism. So I think that says it all, you know. In the beginning, he seemed to appeal to uh, neo-Maoist ideals, um, like he was striving for a better society. But since then, I think the, the Chinese neo-Maoists have really seen that he isn't really capable of that. All right. Well, now looking forward, what impact might Mao's continuing legacy have on the future of China and how China uh, will be perceived by the rest of the world? Well, I think the fact that the Communist Party has not undertaken um, a proper accounting of the disastrous policies that were enacted under Mao really puts it in a difficult position because it can't really discourage this neo-Maoist fringe too much because effectively all they're doing is repeating the notion that is expressed in the 1981 resolution that Mao Zedong thought is really the origin of all Chinese political thinking after his death. Um, and while Xi Jinping would prefer people not to see Mao Zedong as a god but a human being, the fact is that the Chinese government's own approach to his legacy has really opened up a Pandora's box. In the book, we, we say that it's actually quite a dangerous situation that the government finds itself in because it's not necessarily uh, neoliberal thinkers who pose a threat to China's stability, but neo-Maoists themselves. So you have to remember that... Um, the core of Maoist thought was revolutionary and violently revolutionary. So China's Communist Party today is really focused on stability that forms the basis of all of its foreign policy and domestic policy. I think that the government will really have to think carefully about how it presents Mao, um, how it presents its history, if it wants to prevent this fringe group from becoming um, more vocal and influential than it has already become over the last few years. So unfortunately, that's all for this episode of the ACRI podcast. Thank you, Simone, for that excellent exploration of how the shadow of Mao lingers over today's China and why China's current crop of leaders and a section of its population continue to pay heed to Mao and to his ideological and political legacy. We hope to have you in front of the mic uh, more often in future instead of just behind it. It'd be my pleasure. Thanks very much again for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the Yakri podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Our next episode will feature Wan Ning Sun, Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Sun will discuss recent reports in Australian media on a series of incidents that saw some Chinese international students in Australian universities protesting lecture and tutorial content that they perceived to be incorrect or offensive to China. Professor Sun will explore how communications between international students and academic staff in Australian universities can be improved and consider strategies for better engaging international students. You can find out more about ACRI via our website, australiachinarelations.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.